We've been having presidential elections since the country was founded. And each presidential election, depending on how it goes, has a significant effect on the trajectory of policy. That's Rohit Kumar, a principal and co-leader of the PwC Tax Policy Services Practice. This is Heather Horn, and I'm happy you've joined me for another episode in our summer podcast series, What's Next? As we look ahead to 2021, what can we expect to come next from Washington? From new policies and government funding programs to the continued efforts of recovery in the November election, Rohit's going to take us behind the headlines to give us a look into what's happening in Washington and the questions that are top of mind for many companies. Rohit, very nice to have you back on the show. And as we're recording at the end of August, I think there's a lot of question and speculation about the fact that we haven't seen a bill coming out of Congress. And we had even talked earlier in June that we had anticipated that something would happen over the summer. So just to dive straight into things, what do you expect to come next? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I was more confident than I should have been that they would have reached an agreement on what we're referring to as a phase four COVID-19 piece of relief legislation, because there was a, although there was a wide gap in the total amount of spending that each party was willing to commit to, Senate Republicans uh, came in at about a trillion dollars. House Democrats were something closer to $3.5 trillion. Underneath that, though, there was actually a fair bit of overlap on some of the provisions. The numbers were a little bit different, but numbers are always something that can be negotiated. Uh, but the total inability to get a bill done was not something that we had anticipated. And so as we sit here in the sort of waning days of August, there is a little bit of an ongoing effort, even right now, uh, largely focused on the post office and additional funding for the post office, that there some believe will become a sort of saturation point to carry a smaller kind of what we're referring to as a skinny bill of just the most consensus of consensus Uh, provisions. So some expanded unemployment benefit, maybe not the full additional $600, but not $0, which is what is authorized now. Some reauthorization of the Paycheck Protection Program. This is a small business lending facility that that had some bumps getting off the road, but otherwise seems to be working pretty well. This is bipartisan and overwhelmingly popular on Capitol Hill. You know, maybe another round of rebate checks for individuals uh, to follow with the original round of rebate checks. And actually, one thing we learned from CARES Act was that the IRS is actually pretty good at getting money out the door, right? It has a relationship with the vast majority of taxpayers. It has electronic deposit information for a lot of taxpayers. And so if you want to get money to individuals quickly, actually, the IRS is a pretty efficient way to do it. The IRS, I think, acquitted itself well uh, in getting the checks. I'm thinking about to everybody and there's still some glitches in the system, but you know, had a pretty good success rate. So that's pieces like that are sort of thought as like candidates for a quote skinny bill. I'll be honest though, even though there's this current attention to the post office and post office funding, I still think the parties are pretty far apart on some of the major issues, including the top line number, three and a half trillion dollars versus a trillion dollars, that it's going to be difficult for them to reach an agreement imminently. By imminently, I mean, you know, before mid-September. They're, they will continue to have efforts uh, because there's a real need there. And I think both parties acknowledge that there's some need. Um, the other variable, though, is while both parties broadly acknowledge there is some need, there is a cohort of elected officials who think maybe we've done enough, or certainly if we don't, we need to do more, a trillion dollars is more than the system needs right now, given all the relief that's been pushed out through the system. And, and a lot of that funding, truthfully, is still available. It hasn't been fully 
uh, spent. There's still a lot of money level for state and local governments. The Treasury Department still has several hundred billion dollars in the exchange stabilization fund that is yet to be fully deployed. And so you've got a lot of folks saying, um, not a majority, but a, a non-trivial minority, saying, look, there's a lot of money out there already that hasn't been spent. Why don't we look into that first before we authorize new spending? So that has presented a hurdle. And in particular, for my old boss, Senator McConnell, that's presented a hurdle. because You've got sort of a contingent of, by his estimation, you know, 20 to 25 Senate Republicans who are just like not convinced that another trillion dollar bill is necessary. And that's a that's a real challenge that that has proven to be, you know, an issue. But even if that you didn't have that, you still have just the broad disagreement between the two parties as to the scale of the next bill. And then how do we, you know, right now, last week, we had the Democratic convention this week, the Republican convention, how do we see that fitting in with the potential future bill or no real impact? Well, it has an impact in the sense that um, even if we thought there was going to be some consensus around this postal funding becoming sort of a saturation point for a broader, broader, skinnier bill anyway, uh, it certainly won't happen this week with the Republican convention happening. Senate Republicans have been very clear that they're not going to do anything to step on the message of the convention. And so if there's going to be any activity, it would be earliest next week. I don't think, though, that the convention is the real stumbling block here. Um, I think the real stumbling block is there's just not an agreement uh, as a matter of policy as to what they want to pursue. Um, if they had an agreement, um, the difference between today and a week from today wouldn't be that different. But a week from today, I don't think we're going to be any closer to an agreement than we are right now. So then, Rohit, let's turn our attention to something that did occur in the past few months, which was the executive order on payroll. And I know there's been a lot of questions about that and you know, still some uncertainty. So what are we hearing there? And you know, what types of questions are we getting? There were four executive orders in all, one on eviction, one on student loans, one on unemployment, and the payroll one you mentioned. The unemployment one is also getting some attention as states and state unemployment agencies are grappling with how to implement the additional payments the executive order authorizes. On the payroll side, right, that's squarely in the province of business because what the executive order says is it sort of authorizes uh, employers to stop withholding on behalf of their uncertain employees, those that make below a certain income threshold, stop withholding the employee share of the payroll tax. As a reminder, the employer share was already deferred uh, pursuant to previous activity, and that's repayable in two tranches at the end of 2021 and the end of 2022. So this on the employee side is a new development. What we're seeing, though, is there are a lot of questions. As we And again, as we sit here on Monday, uh, August 24th, we don't yet have guidance from Treasury and IRS about how this is going to work. And I think certainly one of the questions that I've been getting repeatedly is that it's a a pretty straightforward one, which is, okay, let's say I, as an employer, I sort of defer withholding my employees' share of payroll tax liability. Um, It's a deferral. It's not a forgiveness, right? Forgiveness can only come from Congress. Deferral can come uh, from the administration. When it comes time to pay that back, what happens if that employee is no longer my employee? What if they've left? Right? How do I manage that risk that I, as the employer, am still liable for the employee share, but the employee may no longer have an employer-employee relationship with me? Uh, and so that's become the real challenge. And without some guidance on that question, what we're seeing is a lot of nervousness, just a lot of questions You know, so far, a lot of reluctance to take advantage of this. And it gets even more complicated because not every employee may want to take advantage of this. They may decide, well, I'm going to have to pay it back eventually anyway. I'd rather just pay it you know, every two weeks as I'm doing now rather than pay it back in one, you know, one or two big chunks down the road. Um, the NEC director, Larry Kudlow, was in the press last week suggesting that maybe 
they would allow repayment over eight years. And that certainly makes it easier for the employee from an employee's perspective because it's less to be paid back in each uh, sort of installment payment. But I think it ironically makes it harder on the employer side because if it's payable over a longer period of time, that's a longer period of time during which you'd have to be confident that you maintain that employer employee relationship. And so there's all sorts of questions about, well, if the employee leaves, how do I get that money from them? Or am I on the hook for it as the employer? And if I am, that makes it tricky, right? And as we've seen in other sort of payroll tax uh, settings, you know, it's not just the employer that has to be you know, sort of organized and able to do this. A lot of payroll processors have to be involved in order to operationalize this so that you adjust the withholding on behalf of the employee. So it's really, it's quite tricky. And, you know, we'll see what, we don't have the guidance yet. Does this in some way force Congress's hand or make it more likely that a payroll tax holiday works its way into whatever the next phase of COVID relief legislation looks like, whenever that might happen? And I think, ironically, the fewer employers that evince an interest or willingness to do this, the less likely it is that Congress feels compelled to move in this space. I think as an objective matter, there's just not a lot of appetite for this on Capitol Hill. There certainly wasn't a month ago. And if in the wake of the administration's action, we don't see a lot of employers jumping at the opportunity to do this, it's only likely to reinforce as a political matter, the lack of enthusiasm um, on Capitol Hill. And the flip side is if a bunch of employers have done this, or turns out they do do it, and a year from now or two years from now, a bunch of workers are faced with a huge repayment obligation, that would at that time, not now, but a year or two years from now, whenever the repayments become due, that might put pressure on a future Congress to relieve that obligation. But if it doesn't happen as uh, in the first instance, that won't happen. And even if it did happen now, even if there was a bunch of deferral, you know, a lot of companies taking advantage of deferral, a lot of employees taking advantage of deferral with the cooperation of their employers, we wouldn't know whether that would put pressure on Congress until the repayments came due. And that's, you know, at some point down the road. Yeah, it seems like a lot of uncertainty for employers, just given the uncertainty around the rules, uncertainty if something could happen in the future that would impact this. So I guess to your point, in the next week or so, we may learn more. This is one we definitely stay tuned because Treasury has a lot of authority and we'll have to see what the guidance says, whether that provides a clear path forward for those that want to take advantage of it. So then, Rohit, one more question before we move off this, which is that, you know, there's been some talk that maybe this is a way to start to undermine Social Security, you know, that there's a push for something like that. How do you view this in the bigger picture? Right. Yeah. So that actually, I, I don't believe that that's what's going on. And, and, and largely because Congress and administrations across parties have a long history of providing payroll tax relief and then backfilling the Social Security Trust Fund um, with general fund transfers, right? There are examples going back of the most recent example. It's not that recent, but think about 2009, the make work pay provisions of the 2009 stimulus bill. Um, even in one of the, it was the phase two COVID relief bill had a provision that allowed for, that sort of required smaller business to provide paid family and medical leave to their employees, but then provided the employer a payroll tax credit um, or a way to credit those payments against their payroll tax obligation in order to get the money into the hands of the employer more quickly. If it was an income tax credit, then it would wait till they have to file the return. That's a year and change from now. But payroll taxes are remitted on a more regular basis. So both parties have a history of using the payroll tax mechanism to try to create liquidity for employees, for individuals, and then just backfilling the trust fund with general funds. And that's what would, um, if this ended up being a 
actual forgiveness. It's not, it's just a deferral. So as long as it's a deferral, it has zero impact um, on the trust fund other than maybe some lost interest earnings. Uh, that's sort of a rounding error in the context of Social Security. If it became a actual relief provision where the, the obligation were forgiven, they would backfill it with the general fund. All right. Well, so then Rohit, why don't we turn our attention maybe past September? And do you would you anticipate then any other major policy or developments that say between now and the election or immediately post-election? So I think um, there's actually at least one event between now and the election, which is at the end of September. September 30th, the federal government's fiscal year ends. And so Congress will have to act to extend the discretionary accounts, um, which is the a vast majority. When you think of the federal government, federal spending, a good deal of it is in the discretionary accounts part of the equation. So that's the entire Defense Department, or the Labor Department or OSHA or EPA, right? you know, everything that is not mandatory funding, entitlement spending um, sits in the discretionary side of the ledger. And if Congress doesn't act before September 30th, then we have a partial government shutdown. We've have experience with these in the past. There have been several over the last several decades, including over the last several years. So this is not new, but it is unwelcome. And I don't think anybody wants a government shutdown, but nobody wanted to fail on a phase four bill either. So despite not wanting it, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I think the risk is low, but it is not zero. And that September 30th deadline is actually now seen as the sort of likely driving force for a deadline on a phase four COVID-19 relief bill, although Speaker Pelosi has said she would like to keep them separate. Um, I can understand why she might want to keep them separate, but just as a practical legislative matter, it's hard for me to see these not being combined in some way because, oh, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about it. A big part of what was being negotiated on the COVID-19 relief side in this phase four bill was a significant amount of additional discretionary appropriations up to $300 billion for tracing, testing, vaccine research, education, right, reopening schools, all of that. That's all discretionary spending. Well, the continuing resolution is just a big discretionary spending bill. So it's going to be hard, I think, to separate those issues as much as it might make logical sense or, it might, you know, there might be a desire to separate them. I think they end up being collapsed. And so to my mind, mid to late September becomes the, really the focal point for the uh, picking up the now currently kind of dormant phase four COVID relief negotiations, combine it with the September 30th continuing resolution negotiations and wrap that all up into a ball and extend government funding past the election. You know, if I were to go out on a limb, I would predict Friday, December 18th would be the date that the continuing resolution would expire. The only reason I would pick that date as opposed to any other calendar date available is Friday the 18th is the Friday before Christmas. And in my considerable experience on Capitol Hill, the Friday before Christmas is when magical things happen and previously irreconcilable differences somehow become reconcilable. Uh, because the leaders know that come that following Monday, members are going to start what we used to refer to as voting with their feet, which is they will leave. They will just depart and go to wherever they were planning on being for the holidays. And they will tell the leaders, you work it out. I'm going home. Uh, so the Friday before Christmas typically becomes the deadline, the real deadline for wrapping up the year round. And that would be the logical date for a continuing resolution. And then there will be, Heather, to your question, so that's the pre-election exercise. There will be some legislation after the election and how much they do really depends on what happens in the election, right? If there is a democratic sweep, there will be some interest in, uh, to borrow a phrase from former Speaker Boehner, quote, cleaning the barn, right? To kind of clear the decks of all the kind of remaining to-do items so that 
if Democrats are ascendant and they have the House, the Senate and the White House, that they've got kind of a clear path, you know, for the first six months or first year, not having to deal with some leftover deadlines that were left over from the previous um, Congress. If we have more what I would call a status quo election, the status quo is divided government. And there are a number of ways in which we could have divided government still in 2021. Then maybe the incentive to do a lot. Uh, because both parties will have some leverage in 2021. And so they might just want to be efficient, get done and, and you know take a break. But there will be probably as a part of any year end bill, whether it's a sort of an aggressive lame duck session or a more sort of tame, there's probably at least one more tax bill uh, left in the system. There's a whole bunch of tax provisions that expire at the end of the calendar year, 20 or 30. We refer to these in DC as extenders um, or expiring provisions. Those will typically be dealt with as a part of a year-end exercise, and I, I would anticipate that they would be wrapped up. Remember, if my prediction is correct and the government funding only goes to at some point in December, there will then yet be another government funding deadline that will drive activity that will be sort of the wrap-up, the year-end wrap-up bill uh, that could include appropriations, additional government funding, some tax provisions. And then, of course, depending on what happens with phase four you know, the phase four negotiations, there may be some still lingering tax issues, newly created lingering tax issues that arise as a result of what might happen between now and September 30th. Uh, unfortunate timing for tax accountants to be dealing with it then. Rohit, one other question, you know, the, the whole backdrop for all of this is COVID. How does that fit in in terms of, you know, if there's a resurgence of cases in different places, you know, we're seeing a different experience all over the country, or is that sort of pushed now to the side and it, it's occurring, but it's not really directly impacting what's going on from a congressional perspective? Yeah, so... COVID is definitely very much lurking in the background all this, because as you said, it is the underlying cause of everything that we're experiencing in terms of the economy and the shutdowns and the like. It is not driving the conversation in a day in and day out basis quite in the same, at least at the national political level, as it was, say, in March or April. Um, but it's still very much there. And Congress will be forced, whether it wants to or not, to react if there's another sort of huge uncontrolled spike in cases. It seems like governors and mayors sort of know what tools that they are at their disposal and how to manage that. So that's, I think part of it is the success in, in managing, or at least knowing how to manage uh, the caseloads. Uh, but that that still very much remains an issue. And in one place where I think it will have a, sort of a more, a longer term sort of rebound effect in terms of federal policymaking is this now sort of new entrant in the policy conversation about reshoring. Right. And whether or not for national security reasons, more so than trade or economic reasons, certain things we want to have made either domestically or if not domestically in countries with whom we have strong economic and political ties. I, I sort of think of this as almost like a whitelist, blacklist uh, kind of arrangement where there are certain whitelisted countries. You can think of North America certainly would fall to that kind of Canada and Mexico because we have a trade agreement with them. We share borders. We have you know friendly relationships. Western Europe in particular, right? And then there's a whole host of countries known to all that we have maybe less friendly relationships or less closer ties. And so there is this longer term interest in thinking about supply chain and manufacturing and where do certain critical things happen? And are we confident that in a crisis, we would have access to supplies and materials that we need? And at least in the initial instance, it was sort of focused on biopharma and maybe semiconductors. Uh, but there's no reason why the policy conversation necessarily is self-limited to just those two sectors. In fact, my instinct is if there is going to be some 
broad effort on reshoring, it ends up being more generic than just one sector or two. And while on the one hand, that might seem really appealing to folks like, okay, there's going to be a whole bunch of incentives to do stuff in the United States that previously was done somewhere else or to do it you know, in one country versus another, there is a mirror image to this, right? If, if I'm thinking about reshoring as a policy matter generally, there are at least three tools available in the toolbox. One is incentives, right? And that's for well understood investment tax incentives and, and things like that. Um, the other is tariffs. So we can both make it more attractive to do it domestically. We can also make it less attractive to do it in certain jurisdictions by imposing tariffs on imports into the United States. And we've seen broad use of that in this administration. And then the third is mandates, right? So you could also show up with not just an incentive to do it here, but a requirement to manufacture in a certain jurisdiction, whether it's the United States um, or elsewhere. And certainly there's a long history of US government doing that with so-called Buy America provisions where the US government as a major uh, actor of the economy only purchase products made you know in the United States for example but again the mandates are another tool in the toolbox and as a business leader um, while I might you know, incentives might sound attractive to me tariffs and mandates might feel a little bit different so this is a conversation this will have a longer tail on this is probably not a 2020 it's a 2020 conversation but in terms of legislative activity and actual policy making it's more of a 2021 and beyond. It's just going to take a while because this is sort of a relatively new area of thought. So the ideas just aren't as well developed as they are in some of these other areas. And that to me is probably something that happens irrespective of who wins in the election and who's running Washington, D.C. in 2021, because that interest is really quite bipartisan. And so this is one area where sort of irrespective of how things shake out in November, I think this is a conversation that continues in 2021. Yeah, it's interesting, Rohit. I had Kevin Keegan on last week talking about supply chain and uh, specifically and and some of the choices companies have to make. And you are touching on it as well, which is that looking ahead to 2021, there's a lot of uncertainty and companies are going to need to have a lot of flexibility. So when you are engaging with companies in the conversation about 2021, what are you talking to them about? Yeah, so I'll tell you, it's the uncertainty is there, um, and maybe the first thing I remind folks is, you know, we've been having presidential elections since the country was founded, and each presidential election, depending on how it goes, has a significant effect on the trajectory of policy. Right? There are two major political parties in this country; they have pretty different views of the world, and you know, who's running the show matters in terms of you know policy outcomes. Right now, the conversation that we're engaging in most frequently is one where you know, people are looking at the polls. Right. And right now in the polls, Vice President Biden is in the lead and it's an open question as to who's going to have control of the Senate. But it's certainly possible that Biden will win and Democrats will be in the majority in the Senate. And in this scenario, they would keep the House um, as well. And you would have the mirror image of the first two years of the Trump administration. You'd have a Democratic president with a Democratic Congress. And that opens up the possibility of a whole series of policy outcomes that look quite different than one in which there is some version of uh, divided government. Remember, it was in 2000, the first two years of the Obama administration, where Democrats had total control of the House, Senate, and White House, where the Affordable Care Act came into play. Um, and it was the first two years of the Trump administration, where Republicans had control of the House, Senate, and White House, where the TCJA, a Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, came into play. So we've seen over time, and you can even go back 2001, 2002, the Bush administration, George W. Bush, Republicans had the House, Senate, uh, and White House, and that's where the Bush tax cuts came into play. So we have over time lots of history of when one party has a majority in both the House, the Senate, and controls the White House, 
that's when major policy changes tend to happen because there are certain tools that are available to the majority party that allow them to overcome a filibuster, especially in the Senate. And so clients are starting to sort of scenario plan as one of the scenarios. It's not the only scenario, to be clear, but it is one scenario that we are increasingly getting asked to sort of you know, help them think through what might the policy world look like. Vice President Biden has a tax plan. Uh, some of those would be pretty significant departures from the tax world as it exists today. And you know, how do you think about those questions? So then, Rohit, with all of this background and given all this uncertainty, when you look ahead, what makes you optimistic about the future? I think what makes me optimistic about the future is a, a couple of things. One is um, on the health side, right? The, the speed at which the vaccine research seems to be happening um, is unprecedented. And, and one thing that um, hasn't gotten as much attention, but I think once there's a vaccine will come into significant play, um, is that the United States has you know, commitments to pre-purchase several hundred million doses of any one of a number of candidates that comes to market. So once a vaccine is available, you know, we will be, we've done some planning for how we procure that and then start distributing it out. So that gives me some reason for optimism. And I think that what we're seeing is, although it has been painful to be sure, this has forced us all to rethink how we conduct business and has caused us, has opened up new avenues and new paths for the way in which we organize our daily lives that while extremely painful and not the way in which we, anyone would have hoped to have engaged in this exercise, probably yields a stronger, more sort of resilient uh, economic model in 2021. There's a whole host of revisiting of a whole bunch of questions, economic policy, social policy, and the like that, you know, has perhaps been long overdue. And this has just forced it, you know, front and center in, in ways that it might have taken years otherwise to, to emerge. Well, as always, Rohit, it's a pleasure speaking to you. And I really appreciate your insights. Thanks for having me. I look forward to doing it again. Thank you to Rohit and thank you for tuning in. Join me back here each week for new podcast episodes. Next Tuesday, we'll be taking a look at a timely topic, debt versus equity. And then we're taking Thursday off so we all have time to enjoy the long holiday weekends. We'll be back with two new episodes the week of September 7th. So look for us then. So that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content, Subscribe to the PwC Accounting Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.